So Colossians chapter one, verse 15. Now what we've been looking at is we've seen Paul giving thanks and praying for the, the saints at Colossus. And in this prayer, Paul's been praying that the church would simply know God, know God in a more fuller way and that they would see the greatness and the necessity of Jesus. All of this, you see, has been very intentional in what Paul has been speaking and praying about because he's needing to address uh, a little bit of a heresy and controversy that's been creeping into the church at Colossus. And there was this teaching that began to unravel and this idea that began to be promoted that your salvation was ultimately a matter of spiritual enlightenment rather than it being centered on and completely in and through Jesus Christ and the work he did for us. And so this idea of having a right kind of knowledge, the Greek word for knowledge is gnosis. And so this heresy became what we know today in throughout church history as Gnosticism. Now, Gnosticism began to teach that God couldn't create the world because all matter they believed was evil. And if God were to create the world with this matter, well, then he would be corrupting and compromising himself. So God created these, these various emanations or lesser gods that eventually worked their way down the line till one got so far removed from God that they were able to create the world. They themselves were actually kind of seen as evil and were sort of completely against God himself. And they believed then that Jesus was just one of these emanations or lesser gods and thus became just really a, a stepping stone then to God. That Jesus wasn't the way, the truth, and the life, but was just a step in the right direction to God. The general understanding that was issued, uh, or the, this, this general understanding issued in some specific expressions. First of all, as I've kind of said, the creating God is not the true God, but a distant emanation, ignorant of, and even hostile to the true God. Secondly, Jesus was not unique, but merely an emanation, one of the many intermediaries between God and man. Jesus may stand high, even highest, in the series of emanations from God, but still he was one among many. Thirdly, Jesus was not truly and fully man. This argument proceeded from a general presupposition. If material flesh is evil, then he who was the revelation of God cannot have a real body. He cannot have real flesh and blood as we are flesh and blood. So the Gnostics insisted that Jesus was a spiritual phantom in bodily form. As we had mentioned previously, if Jesus walked along the beach, there'd be no footprints left in the sand because he was just a phantom. That's interesting because you'll see what we'll look at later in this passage about what Paul is emphasizing because he's revealing that Jesus was a real person in full physical bodily form. Lastly, Number four, the Gnostics refused to see Christ as the center or the source of salvation. They insisted that the task of, huma of humankind is to find the way to God, climbing up a ladder as it were, getting past each emanation of God by special knowledge, special passwords. Thus, there was great mystery. And the Gnostics claimed to hold the key to the mystery, the key being elaborate knowledge. You can see the root of that that we see being played out in various 
uh, theories and spiritual ideas today with mysticism and, you know, spiritual enlightenment. I've been enlightened, you see, and you see people like that, right? Uh, Shirley MacLaine and the likes, right? That are trying to pass on this special kind of understanding or knowledge, and it all has its roots right here in Gnosticism that Paul was having to deal with in the church at Colossus. So as you can see, this is a serious problem where Jesus then was being relegated to an inferior, insufficient position. So Paul sets out now to reveal in a very succinct and reasoned presentation that Jesus Christ is not only sufficient, but that he is supreme over all. When we look to Jesus, we are looking to the very top. There's no one greater. There's no one that is able to save us apart from Jesus Christ. One writer observed that this passage that we're going to look at here represents a loftier conception of, Christ, of Christ's person than is found anywhere else in the writings of Paul. Another wrote, no comparable listing of so many characteristics of Christ and his deity are found in any other scriptural passage. Christ is the supreme sovereign of the universe. It's been well said that if Jesus is not Lord of all, then he cannot be Lord at all. If we don't see Jesus in the rightful position that he holds in our lives, in this church, in this entire universe, then we cannot make him the Lord of our lives. He is supreme. He is preeminent. And that's what Paul is going to be addressing in such a wonderful way in this passage. We reach some high peaks of scriptural majesty today to reveal the sufficiency, the supremacy, the preeminence of Jesus. So verse 15, we're going to look at Jesus in connection to the Father, Jesus in connection to the church, and Jesus in connection to uh, or in connection to creation, and then Jesus in connection to the church here. So first of all, Jesus in connection to the Father, verse 15 says this, that he is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn over all creation. So here we have right off the bat a very clear affirmation to the deity of Jesus Christ. So that Greek word that's used for image is the word icon, where we get our word icon, icon, if you say it in the Greek here. And it has two ideas primarily associated with it. First of all, it speaks of likeness or representation. It would be the word that was used to speak of an image that would be stamped upon, you know, a coin or something that represents that person, that, that figure. So it's a likeness, it's a representation. But then it also implies and speaks of manifestation. In other words, God was fully manifest or made known in and through Jesus Christ. That Christ is whatever God is, spiritual, omnipresent, omnipotent, holy, whatever kind of attribute that God holds, it's seen in and manifested through Jesus, that he is very God of very God. This is the Jesus that we speak of. This is who G, uh, Paul is looking to highlight and, and glorify in this passage here today. Now, many like to kind of argue, argue, how can I really give my life to a God that I cannot see? Or even, how can I worship something that I 
cannot see. And I'm sure we've all kind of been in that place where we thought, oh, how wonderful it'd be if we just, you know, worshiped in our, in our time of worship and all of a sudden God appeared before us. Man, wouldn't that be incredible? We would just sing, man, I'm gonna sing even louder. I'm gonna just really, I'm gonna raise my hands even higher. If God were to appear before me, man, that would change everything that I did, right? And we think, man, if God could just reveal himself, that would just change everything for me. And yet we know as we worship, God is here. But even more so, God has revealed himself in and through the person Jesus Christ. We don't need to have some kind of vision of God when we have Jesus Christ who has come to this world to fully express who God is. In fact, Jesus said to his disciples, he who has seen me has seen the Father, John 14 verse nine. He who has seen me has seen the Father. The writer of Hebrews would say in chapter one, verse three, who, speaking of Jesus, who being in the likeness or the brightness of his glory and the express image of his person and upholding all things by the word of his power when he had by himself purged our sins, sat down the right hand of the majesty on high. Do you see what it says there? That Jesus is in the brightness of his glory and he's the express image of his person. All that God is, is seen in Jesus Christ. And if you are sitting there going, well, that still doesn't help because I haven't seen Jesus, we just need to open up the word of God to have a full revelation of who Jesus is because when we go into the word of God and we get the word of God into us, it's not for the purpose of sounding more spiritual, of looking more holy, it's for the purpose of knowing Jesus and being in fuller relationship with him, knowing God. That's why we desire to come together and study scripture. It's because it's the way that we're gonna know Jesus and we're gonna hear from him. It's all right here in the word of God. And so Jesus is that full uh, expression, he's that image, he's that representation, but more so the manifestation of who God is. And this not only tells us about Christ, it also tells us about ourselves. Because as Jesus is the image of God, he is what we were meant to be in terms of character because we were created in his image as well. Jesus is supreme in eternity and we ought to give him first place now in our lives. And notice it goes on to say there in verse 15, the end of verse 15, that he's the firstborn over all creation. Now cults love to have a heyday with a verse like this. This is what they've got circled. This is what they got underlined. This is what they're bringing people to to try to make the case that like Jehovah's Witnesses say that Jesus was just a created being, that he's not fully God. And this originated with the, the teaching and the, the, the heretic Arius. Jehovah's Witnesses are just simply continuing on that, that Arian heresy that stemmed from this idea that Jesus was a created being. Now, understand something. When you read this, you go, firstborn overall creation. Yeah, that, what does that mean? How, how do we get around that? That just seems to back up what they're trying to say. But that word firstborn does not imply uh, the first created or first in order, but rather the first in status. It speaks of a priority of position. Now, Interestingly, to explain this further to a, a Jehovah's Witness, you can take them to Psalm 89, verse 27. Here's what Psalm 89, verse 27 says. Also, I will make him my firstborn, the highest of the kings of the earth. And that Psalm is speaking of King David, who's the lastborn of Jesse, yet God says that he would make him his firstborn, which meant David will excel in rank above all kings. It didn't imply that God would reverse his birth order suddenly make him the firstborn. 
No, it meant that he would excel in rank above all others. You see, to mix this up now and try to make Jesus a created being is to willfully ignore the, the context of the passage here. Jesus was truly God, as is evidenced by the next verse. Look at verse 16. And we see Jesus in connection to creation now saying this, for by him all things were created that are in heaven and that are on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or principalities or powers, all things were created through him and for him. So understand something. I hope I'm not rocking your world in any way, but Jesus did not have his beginning in the manger at Bethlehem. A lot of times they think, oh, that's so wonderful. It's when Jesus came into being. That's when he came and took on human form, but Jesus was eternally existent from the beginning of, from beyond <laughs> the beginning of time. He's always existed and he's the very one by which created all things. This is what Paul is saying here. By him all things are created. That, that's what John said in his gospel in John chapter one, verse three, all things were made through him and without him nothing was made that was made. I mean, John's like, how else can I kind of say this to where you get it? You know, explain this to me like I'm a third grader, right? John says, all things were made through him and without him, nothing was made that was made. Well, what about this item over here? No, if it was made, it was made by Jesus. Well, what about this part of creation over here? If it was made, it was made by Jesus. Jesus is the one that has created all things. Without him, nothing was made that was made. See, the age-old debate for people has been, how did we end up here? Where do we originate from? And sadly, the most asinine views have emerged, and even more sadly, these get presented to our kids in school as gospel truth, where the most ridiculous theories and cases are presented as fact. Listen to the opinion of Stephen J. Gould, who's a Harvard paleontologist and is regarded as an eminent authority on how life began. Gould says, we exist because one odd group of fishes had a peculiar fin anatomy that could transform into legs for terrestrial creatures. Because the earth never froze entirely during an ice age. Because a small and tenuous species arising in Africa a quarter of a million years ago has managed so far to survive by hook and crook. He says, we may yearn for a higher answer, but none exists. What? What is going on here? And, and, and this is just a sample of many theories and views that have been passed on as the reason that everything came into being. But thankfully, we have the word of truth. Stephen Jay Gould may say there's no answer that can really be given or a better or higher answer, but we have the highest of answers right here in the word of God. The truth that's been given to us that Jesus is the one that's created all things. He's created the things around us and he's created you and me. We have been fearfully and wonderfully made. So all things, whether... Paul says visible or invisible have been made through Jesus. 
Now it's pretty incredible, isn't it, to, to look around and to see the things that are visible before us that shout out that there is an intelligent designer around us. It just boggles my mind to think that people can say, look at all this beauty that we have around us. And it came ultimately from the goo to the zoo to you. This is what people like to say. We uh, morphed out of some primordial soup based in the ocean that began to take on life. We emerged from some kind of, you know, animal type being <coughs> into what we have here, you and I today. Some of us still, you know, do resemble sometimes our actions maybe. <laughs> but we're still praying for you. But um, <clears throat> I shouldn't, I'm just kidding. But uh, some of my kids maybe, but um, so here's the thing is that you look around and people are quick to explain away the, the, the beauty that we have around us through some kind of ridiculous logic that they try to put forth. And yet you would never say, you know, look at those vehicles out there. Um, those amazingly, just some mechanic took all the parts, threw them up in the air, and they just all landed together and assembled this vehicle that you can just drive away in. Nobody would ever reason that, and yet that's what people are trying to say through evolution. It's just kind of has randomly over years just assembled to where we have this design so intricately given. So those are the things that we see, yet let alone the things that are invisible to us. You think about the, the, the beauty of like DNA that scientists have just only recently really begun to uncover the complexity of DNA that again just shouts out, there's no way that this could have just come about through some evolutionary process. There's a designer, an intelligent designer behind it all. Jesus is the one that's done all these things, that's formed and made and created all the things that we see, whether visible or invisible. Even throne and dominion or position of authority has been given by Jesus. That's what some of these things are, I think, that Paul is alluding to as being the invisible things. He's speaking of these spiritual forces, principalities and powers, speaking of angelic beings, good or bad. Jesus is not equal to angels. He's the creator of angels. And he didn't create demons. He created angels that eventually rebelled against God and fell. God's not the creator of evil. This is something that came about through the enemy. So he speaks to these angels, these principalities or powers, to again point out something that was creeping in the church. It was an unhealthy view of angels that people had. They even began to worship angels as we'll see Paul hit on in chapter two of Colossians. So there's this unhealthy view towards angels and yet Paul comes along and says, Jesus is the very creator of those things. He's not one of them. He's not one among many. He's the originator of them. He's the creator of them. He's highly above all of them. And notice that all things now, and I love this, end of verse 16. What does Paul say? All things were created through him and for him. Amen. See, everything that has been created has been created for a purpose, and that purpose is to bring pleasure and glory to God. Your life, my life, exists for the glory of God. Now that might make you feel a little bit like, well, that just, that just kind of puts me as a bit of a subject, it seems, now in the plan of God. But if we're not living for the glory of God, then we're not gonna be subjected to the greatest joy, peace, and pleasure and satisfaction that we can 
experienced in this life because our lives have been created by him and for him and if we're not fulfilling that then we're not going to be living out the joy and that abundance of life that he came to give us a lot of people love to say man i want to live my life for my glory i want my life to shine you know i want to be the one that people look at and go "Ooh, you're really something but you see when you're living life that way you're going to quickly find that that is a life that is going to be empty and unfulfilling why because you're going to find that a lot of people aren't out to make your life shine. <laughs> They're not on that same game plan or agenda that you like to have here about it all centering around you. You're going to quickly find, like, how come people aren't helping me out in this? How come people aren't trying to promote me and make more of me? But you see, when we say it's not about me, in fact, Jesus calls us to die to self and live for him. And if we're living in that manner where God has called us to, created us for that purpose of his pleasure, his glory, it's then that we're gonna be most blessed. And I pray that we get that. It takes, it takes a lifetime for some of us to come to that point of saying, all right, I need to surrender everything. I don't wanna live for my pleasure. I don't wanna live for my glory. I wanna live for your glory, God. I wanna take pleasure in you and I want you to be pleased in and through my life. It takes a lifetime oftentimes for us to come to that point, but the quicker we do, the quicker we're gonna be living in that satisfaction and peace and abundance of life that he's come to give us. Verse 17 goes on to say, and he is before all things and in him all things consist. See, there's nothing that existed before Jesus. He's before all things. You remember that the Jews came against Jesus. They had a real problem with this. They didn't like this idea that Jesus was trying to show himself to be God. They thought there's no way. We know where you've originated from. We know the story. You're born in Bethlehem, right? I mean, we know your parents. How can you say you're eternal? Remember, Jesus would say in John 8, verse 58 and 59, uh, before Abraham was, I am. And he's, Jesus is, is very um, purposefully using this term, I am, because he's declaring himself to be God, but he's also revealing, like, even before Abraham was, I am. I've existed long ago. In fact, what he's saying is, I am eternal. I'm the I am the I am, the eternally existent one is what Jesus is proclaiming. Remember, the, the, the Jews knew exactly what he was saying because they picked up stones ready to stone him. They thought, this is blasphemy. You cannot declare yourself to be God. They picked up stones to, blas uh, to stone him because of blasphemy, but it's not blasphemy if it's true. This is what Jesus was proclaiming, that he is before, he's above, and he's greater than all things. And in him all things consist. Literally, that means that all things are held together in and through Jesus. That word consist is this Greek word, sunestao. Sunestao, where we get our word sustain, which I find is a very great word here because Jesus is the one that sustains us. He's the one that's holding all things together, even in the universe. You know, splitting the atom revealed that there was much power. And there's a whole lot of power that's packed into the universe. And Jesus is the one that is holding it all together now. Second Peter 3.10 seems to allude to a time where Jesus is going to come and loosen that grip and just let everything go. It says there that the heavens will pass away with a great noise and the elements will melt with fervent heat. Both the earth and the works that are in it will be burned up. The first law of thermodynamics 
is the best proved law of science, but science cannot tell us why it's true. The reason that nothing is now being created is that Christ created all things in the past. And the reason why nothing is now being annihilated is that all things are now being sustained, held together by him. If it were not so, the binding energy of the atom, which holds its structure together, would collapse and the whole universe would disintegrate into chaos. People don't understand how that's not happening, but we understand through the word of truth that Jesus is holding all things together. Warren Wearsby tells the story of a guide that took a group of people through an atomic laboratory and explained how all matter was composed of rapidly moving electric particles. The tourists studied models of molecules and were amazed to learn that matter is made up primarily of space. During the question period, one visitor asked, if this is the way matter works, what holds it all together? For that, the guide had no answer. But like I say, we have an answer. It's Jesus Christ. He is before all things. He can hold all things together. And again, it's another affirmation to Jesus being God. Only God exists before all the creation. Only God can make creation cohere. To make Jesus less than God is to dethrone him. And the great thing is, is that as we see, Jesus is holding all things together in the universe, keeping it functioning and not just kind of Boom, being annihilated. He's holding all these things together. But the same one that is holding all these things together in the universe is the same at work in your life, holding us together. We might look and see that, man, I've got pressures mounting in my life. I've got things that are just feeling like they're unraveling. But understand, Jesus is at work, sustaining you. He's holding all things together. He's at work in your life. He's not off busy caring for the universe. He's at work personally in your life to help you, to strengthen you, and to sustain you. Psalm 55 verse 22 says, cast your burden on the Lord and he shall sustain you. He shall never permit the righteous to be moved. Oh, I'm so thankful for those promises in the word of God. I'm so thankful for the care of Jesus Christ who comes alongside and he says, man, when things feel like they are unraveling, falling apart, just know that I'm holding things together. I'm at work in your life. That's the God that we serve. Praise the Lord for that. And we see that very clearly in our next section as we look at verse 18 and Jesus' connection to the church because notice here in verse 18 that he is the head of the body, the church, who is the beginning, the firstborn from the dead, that in all things he may have the preeminence. So as we've been talking about the supremacy of Christ and that he's the creator of all and he's overall, it's amazing to see that he's still connected to us. He calls us in to be that bride of Christ, the, the body of Christ, that's the church, you and I. But notice he's the head. He's the one that is caring for, leading, directing, sustaining again as we've talked about. Paul would say in, in Acts 17 that it's in him we live, move, and have our being. But though Jesus holds a place of supremacy over all things, the beauty of it is, is that he still is involved with us and desires to be in relationship with us. He's revealing to us that we're not gonna function apart from him. That we need to be in relationship to him. Why? Because a body without the head is what? Dead. Doesn't work. You need the head. Are, are you, am, I, am I wrong on that? Everybody with me? Yeah. All the heads are nodding? Yes? Okay. Thank you. Like, everybody, did I say something weird there? Okay. 
body of the head is dead. We need Jesus. We need to be in close connection with him. And that's what he invites us into, to be in a relationship with him, to be connected to him, knowing that apart from him, we can do nothing. He's the head of the body of the church. It's not the pastor. It's not the the leadership team, the elders, is not some board that sits in a corporate office planning everything. It's Jesus who's the head of the church. And apart from him leading, the church is gonna go nowhere. We need to be quick to follow and, and, and allow him to lead and, and follow in whatever direction he leads us in. You ever had a part of your body wanna do its own thing apart from where the head is going? Doesn't work, doesn't happen. We need to follow the head. Jesus is the head of the body of the church who is the beginning, Paul says. See, all things start with him and originate with him. We can do nothing without Jesus. He's the firstborn from the dead. Some people in the Bible were miraculously raised from the dead. A great thing. But they were raised to have to (laughs) die again, right? I mean, wonderful they got spared one time but they're gonna have to die again but Jesus now the firstborn it says from the dead is meaning that he's the first that rose again never to die again he rose again with a new glorified resurrected body he's conquered sin death the grave he's defeated it all and it's our hope now that because he rose again the firstborn or the the as, as Paul would say in Romans the or Corinthians, the first fruits of the resurrection, it gives us a great hope too. That we're eternal beings, that we have life beyond the grave, just as Jesus has shown so clearly for us. And Paul ends there in verse 18 that he may have the preeminence. My friends, our goal as we gather, as we function, as the church, the body of Christ, Our goal is to see Jesus have priority, have all the praise, have the preeminence in everything we do. That Jesus is the one that we see and that nothing detracts, distracts, or takes away from us just simply seeing Jesus and glorifying him. In Leonardo da Vinci's famous painting of the Last Supper, our Lord's hands are empty. And therein lies a very interesting story because da Vinci dedicated three years to this painting and determined that it would be his crowning work. Well, before the unveiling, he decided to show it to a friend of his for who he had uh, just the utmost respect. And the friend's praise was unbounded. The friend said, oh, the cup in Jesus' hand is especially beautiful. Disappointed at once, da Vinci began to paint out the cup and astonished the distinguished friend asked for an explanation. What are you doing? Da Vinci explained, nothing, nothing must distract from the figure of Christ. I mean, that'd be true for us, that Jesus would hold that position of honor and priority and all praise in the church, in our lives, personally, but in the church corporately, that Jesus has preeminence. Notice what it says in verse 19, as we look Lastly, once more now at Jesus' connection to the Father because it says in verse 19 that it pleased the Father that in him all the fullness should dwell. Now that word fullness is the Greek word pleroma where, and, and Paul's use of this word is, is kind of like an intentional slap at these false teachers who use this word 
to describe the totality of the thousands of emanations created by God that were these lesser gods. So they looked at this and they said, here's the, plero- the pleroma uh, of God, all these thousands of emanations that you need to kind of work through and, and have a special knowledge unlocking all these mysteries to really reach God to attain to this kind of perfection or salvation. They looked at this as the pleroma, but what does Paul say? Oh, no, you got it wrong. Jesus is the pleroma of God. Jesus is the one where God places the fullness of who he is. Everything that God is, is dwelling in Christ. It's seen in and through Christ. Again, he who has seen Jesus has seen the Father. The fullness, God, God was pleased. God took pleasure in saying, I want to reveal myself. I'm gonna do so in the person of Jesus Christ. I'm gonna send my son to this world that they, my creation, might identify with him and see who I am and know my very heart in these things. And then by him, and here's the heart of the Father, verse 20, by him to reconcile all things to himself, by him whether things on earth or things in heaven, having made peace through the blood of his cross. See, God's desire was to bring all people back into a right relationship with him. Because we were all in a bad spot we were at enmity with god separated from god because of our sin and yet his desire is to reconcile all things to himself this is not though speaking of some kind of universal salvation as sometimes we like to think that yes in the end it's all going to work out god's going to just bring us all in he's a god of love he's going to forgive all people he's going to just rec- he, that's just who god is he's just going to reconcile all people this is not what paul is saying this is not what the word teaches. As much as we would love to believe in a universal salvation, it's just not biblical. What God is speaking of here saying is that the, the provision has been made. Atonement has been given. A sacrifice was made and provision complete for all those that will accept it and receive it and put their trust in Jesus. Again, these false teachers taught that there could be a partial reconciliation made through the ministry of angels and that Jesus was just one of these spirit beings that was an emanation down the line from God. But Paul says, no, it's through Jesus alone. It's through Jesus that we're reconciled to God because he's the one that's made peace through the blood of his cross. Again, these false teachers thought Jesus was just a phantom just a a spirit being. Couldn't take on matter because it was all evil. But now Paul says, no, this Jesus came to fully reveal God. And he came and he died on a cross and his blood was shed. That reconciliation comes about through the blood of his cross. That's where we find peace. Not just the peace of God, but peace now with God because we were once at enmity with God, at war against God. We were guilty, but now through Christ's sacrifice. That's why the, the, the idea of blood is mentioned, not only to reveal that he, is, he was fully God, but fully man, but to also reveal that a full sacrifice was made. The blood does not speak of anything magical or special or mystical. It just simply means that a sacrifice was made. Well, the shedding of blood, there's no remission of sins. A sacrifice must happen because why? The wages of sin is death. 
Death had to be given. And so we see that Jesus died fully. His blood was shed on the cross so that we could be reconciled to God so that we could experience now peace with God. The death of Jesus satisfied the love of God and the blood of Jesus satisfied the justice of God. But here's the thing. Have you been reconciled to God? It doesn't come about by living a good life. It doesn't come about by doing good things, being a good person. Being reconciled to God is not granted to you because you go to church regularly. Being reconciled to God, having sins forgiven and being given eternal life comes about through you putting your faith, your trust in Jesus that he was fully man yet fully God who came to this world to pay the penalty for your sin. That's why he went to the cross. He paid the penalty for your sin. The judgment of God for your sin and my sin was poured out upon Jesus. He was a sacrifice. His life was given so that ours wouldn't have to be. But rather, for those who put their trust in Jesus, we could be forgiven, born again, and have new life in Christ. That's what it means to be reconciled. And I pray that you are experiencing that, that you know that truth and reality in your life. If not, I invite you, give your life to Jesus. Stop trying to do it your way and turn to him and follow his way. And recognize, I'm a sinner separated from God because of my sin. And I need forgiveness. Only Jesus can provide that. Only through Jesus can I be reconciled and brought into right relationship with God. Put your trust in Jesus today. All right, let's pray. Worship team, would you come up? Lord, we thank you for the opportunity to look at just such a beautiful passage that reveals the greatness, the supremacy and sufficiency and the preeminency of Jesus Christ. You are, Jesus, our Lord and our Savior. You're the one that gave your life so willingly that we might find life in and through you. And not just life, but life eternally. The abundant life today, what a blessing. So Lord, I pray for each one here today. If there are those that don't know you as their Lord and Savior, that have been kind of avoiding that, not willing to surrender, I pray, Lord, that they would surrender to you, knowing that, Lord, you create all things and we've been created for you to live for you and it's only then that we're gonna truly find the blessing and satisfaction and joy in this life and in this world. Lord, may we surrender all to you, the very one that's made all, that's above all, that's supreme and sufficient. Lord, may we see and know that sufficiency for our lives today, though we might be going through storms, difficulties, pains, I pray that you would come and just Remind us that you're holding all things together in our lives. You're keeping things intact. Even when it feels like we're falling apart, Lord, may we turn to you and cast our cares, our burdens upon you, Lord, and find and experience that sustaining work that you bring us. Do that work in us, Lord, as we live for you, surrender to you. Pray this in your name, amen. Let's stand together. Let's just take some time to respond to the Lord and his word today.